Uh, Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first, I, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had wing, six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. Um, if you have kids who would like to participate in Missio Kids, they are free to head to the back where Lydia and Gabe are waiting to uh, usher them into kids' classrooms, and then kids will be brought back in here for the second part of the service during communion and worship. So you can do that. Uh, and welcome. Uh, I'm Johnny Morrison. I'm also one of the pastors here. It's so good to have you. If you are new, similar to what Lydia said, love to connect with you and get to know you. Uh, as you can tell from um, that very strange Bible reading passage, uh, we are in the book of Revelation. And at the beginning of the summer, we started a series in the book of Revelation called Kingdom Come. And we'll be continuously in the book of Revelation for, I think, the next 17 years at the rate we're going. And here's the, we've seen a few things in the book of Revelations that I think are important maybe just to highlight because we're moving into a new section of the text. And the chief thing that we've seen as we've been walking through this book and as we've been exploring this book is that Revelation is a letter written to a handful of small churches that are struggling to navigate life in Rome. It's easy to make Revelation about a lot of things to make it about strange mysteries or decoding cryptic messages or finding some kind of future referent for this moment we're reading in the past. And those things may have a place, 
But more than anything else, the book of Revelation is not some story about the future. It's not a prediction that we're trying to unravel. More than anything, it is a letter like most of the New Testament, written to a handful of churches that are struggling to navigate life in Rome. Life for these little communities is contested. Worship is contested. Economics are contested. All parts of the existence of these little churches is contested and complicated because they have chosen at some level to be followers of Jesus in a world that doesn't know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and wants to claim allegiance in different directions. So these churches are wondering, how do we live here? How do we live in Rome? How do we navigate life in this strange context? And so the book of Revelation, it begins by speaking directly to these churches about their circumstances. You remember, we just got done doing seven different messages, little letters written to little churches. But in chapter 4 and 5, which is where we're moving to today, we move into a different kind of uh, text, a different kind of literature in the book of Revelation, and we move into what Michael Gorman, who is going to be doing our class later, calls the central and centering image of the book of Revelation. So what Gorman argues in this moment that the texts that we're going to be in today and next Sunday are the heartbeat of the book of Revelation. So if we want to understand the book of Revelation, if we want to know what the message is to these struggling churches who are navigating life in Rome, it comes from these two chapters. These are the most important messages that will make sense of everything else in the book of Revelation. So what is the message of Revelation from chapter 4 and chapter 5. How are Christians supposed to navigate life in Rome? Well, as you heard from the reading, on one hand, we see an image that is very peculiar. There is rainbows and thunder, and there are creatures with many eyes, and it's the things that are maybe most distracting and uh, interesting about the book of Revelation. And at the center of that image is a picture of God on the throne, and maybe you could say radioactive grandeur. So that's one part of the image that we see. But then on the other hand, the image that we see when we look at this chapter, chapter 4 and chapter 5, is very simple. It's a community gathered in worship. And when I think we put these things together, we get the central message of the book of Revelation, which is simple and yet peculiar and profound. And it is this, that worship is the very center of reality, whether we see it or not. The worship of the creator God is the very center of the cosmos and the universe and reality itself. And we may not know that, we may not pay attention to it, but all creation is swirling about the worship of the creator. And I think the more interesting question is why is that the central message of the book of Revelation? Why is that the thing that a bunch of struggling churches trying to navigate life in a, in a complicated empire, why is a picture of worship the thing that they would be in need of? Why is this grand image of God the story they receive? 
And I think it's because of this, is that it calls them to worship. This image of worship is not meant just to be a picture they look at in a distance. It is meant to call them into worship. As David called us into worship at the beginning of this service, this moment is meant to call the community into worship. Now, I have to be honest. I don't love that. (laughs) Uh, And there's a few reasons I don't love that. The first reason I don't love that is um, gathered worship, the thing that we do here, this is maybe not a a wise thing for a pastor to say, has just not always been my most favorite Christian expression. (laughs) And sometimes this moment in the book of Revelation, this chapter and others, is used to talk about God's future plans in a way that seem very boring for me. Like that heaven or the kingdom of God is endless singing, that it's endless worship. And for me, that has always felt like such a strange and exhausting image, to be honest. So that's one thing that I have that makes me feel difficult about this, and we'll return to that in a second. But here's the primary reason I think that I struggle with this moment and with this message, is that I believe that I can learn my way into faith. And I believe that I can learn my way out of the lies that I believe about myself and about God and about others. That if I have enough information, enough instruction, enough school, that if I can do enough effective reasoning, then I can convince myself of the truths of who God is, that I can convince myself of the gospel, that I can convince myself of the grandeur of the kingdom of God, that I can intellectually walk my way into it in a way that then begins to be true for me and consuming of me. The problem with that is that lies at their most potent have very little to do with what we believe is true. Lies have very little to do with what we believe are true because the most effective lies in the universe, they get into our imagination. They seep into our heart and our nervous system. They penetrate deep and they affect us beyond cognitive recognition. And here's what I mean by that. I believe, for example, with all of my mind, I believe with all of my mind that God loves me. I like know that's true. I can look at the cross and I can see this demonstration of the sacrificial gift of God's love for me. And I know that God loves me. I know that it's true. But I often do not feel like it's true. I intellectually know that there's no height, no depth that could separate me from the love of God, but that does not mean that shame does not often get the last word in my life or that judgment does not often define my relationship with my Redeemer. That those other stories, those more negative lies, are often very consuming to me, even though I know the right answer is that God is love. But lies have a way of seeping past what is true and into something more visceral. I feel like the father in the chapter of Mark 9 who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, I know, but I don't feel. Or for example, I believe that God is at work renewing the world and healing the world. I believe that's true. 
But man, it is sometimes very hard to see that. It is sometimes very hard to imagine that. I believe that God is present and that if I was just attentive, I would know and experience the presence of God. But man, it is sometimes hard to look. Hard to be attentive, hard to pay attention. I know that something is true, but when it actually begins to work itself out of my body, well, my response is different because lies have a way of seeping into us. I think a lot of us have a good amount of right answers about God. I think this is true of the early church as well. They have lots of right answers about God. But right answers are rarely enough to unravel lies that have seeped under truth. Like if you've experienced trauma or heartbreak, we may know that we are okay, but things that are not cognitive can send us back. Something deeper than what is true. And that's because lies do more than speak untruth. It's like they reduce our capacity to imagine a different world. They reduce our capacity to act on the things that we believe. We say we believe God is loving, but lies seep in us, and it reduces our capacity to trust that God actually responds in love. We believe that God is present or that God is fermenting a new future around us, that God is calling us to risk in some new way. We believe that academically, but the lies that have begun to move past truth and seep into our being reduce our capacity to risk in that trust. They reduce our capacity and Talking to those lies, though it may be effective, is often not enough to unravel lies because it has moved beyond that place of truth. It's like we need our whole selves to be oriented in something new. And this is why I think the book of Revelations offers worship to the community struggling to navigate life in Rome because worship uniquely has the capacity to increase our capacity. The worship has the capacity to increase our capacity to imagine and participate in God's new reality. And more than anything else, when you're a church struggling to believe that God is over the empire of Rome, what you need is capacity to imagine that God is bigger than Caesar. You know that's true academically, but it may not feel true when you can't participate in the market because you have not worshipped Caesar recently. And so these churches that are contested and disoriented and struggling to know how to navigate life in this strange world, the book of Revelation offers worship because worship increases our capacity to imagine and participate in God's reality. Now, it does this in a few different ways. In Revelation chapter 4, John sees, as we just heard, this spectacular image of God. In Revelation 4, verse 2 through 4, this is what we see. At once I was in the Spirit. 
And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. This is an image that I think is too big for John's words. And this could be wrong. I wasn't there. But I imagine that what's happening in this moment is that John sees something, and it is spectacular. And so John begins to look for language that can begin to describe the phenomenon that he has just seen. And I don't know that his vocabulary is quite large enough to put words to the event. So he finds every superlative possible that God is like Jasper and Ruby. And I think I see a a rainbow shooting around, and there's this noise, and the closest reference I have to it is thunder, and there's a sea in front of it that is like crystal, and I don't know what that is. And these images, they come from lots of different places. Like John's finding language to describe different things. One Old Testament scholar says that this moment is a symphony of Old Testament images, that the way God shows up in the Old Testament, it's like it slams it all together and puts it into one image so that John clearly knows who he's talking to. But there's a thing that we can do here that makes this moment confusing, which is we can try to look at this vision and find some like doctrinal truth about God in it. Like, it's meant to teach us something didactically. Like, oh, John compares God to Jasper. So God looks like Jasper's. Oh, God maybe is made of Jasper. She's like, no, I think you might be missing something there. This image in Revelations 4 is not meant to offer us an exacting doctrine or maybe an axiomatic theological statement. It is meant to expand our image of God. And in so doing, increase our capacity to imagine God. In this moment, John is trying to give the early church a picture of God that is so big, it decenters every other image, every other lie, every other false story they have ever heard. That it provides something so grand, it makes everything else look pale in comparison. This vision begins by John being invited to see what must come next. And then what's fascinating is that John does not first see what must come next. John sees what is. It's like the writer or Jesus is trying to tell us that before John is allowed to see the future, he needs to see the one who holds the future in his hands. You need to see how big this God is who sits at the center of reality that all things worship, that you need to see how grand, how massive how big God is so that it might reorient and reorder everything else around you. This is what worship does. Worship increases our images of God. 
It invites us to see and to picture and to enter into a, a, a place within ourselves that is more than just our minds, that's our hearts, our imagination. So that we might experience a reorientation and a reordering of life. So that as we understand what's coming, we first know who holds it in their hands. This is a this has been this is like this idea has been so fascinating this week because this has been kind of a weird week in that Tori, my wife, had this like company retreat in the middle of the week. And we had to, we did a little negotiating around it. Negotiating is the way we describe fighting. Um, <laughs> sounds, more, sounds more official. Um, we did some negotiating because she gets the schedule for the retreat, and it's so different than what she had told me it was going to be. Like, I thought we were going to have some time to work, and I was going to be able to, like, catch up on some stuff, and maybe just have, like, some, you know, some chill time. And then it ended up being, like, get there super early in the morning, work super late, sleep there, and then do again the next day. And that was the whole thing. I was like, oh, great. That's week over. And so we do that. That throws off my schedule. We get back into town, and I get a flat tire. Uh, and then I try to fix my flat tire, which, uh, if you know me, I have no uh, manual labor skills. Um, I have a lot of energy, no skills. So you, you invite me for like, the, the hard work, not the technical work. But I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fix it myself. I'm an adult. Um, and what I did is I like, oh, man. I like, <laughs> I got the nuts off, I like lifted it on the jack, I then finished getting the nuts off, the tire won't come off. And I was like, well, that sucks. So then I, posi- I like sit on the ground, I put my legs against the car to pull the tire. <laughs> I pull, the car moves off the jack and into the driver's seat of my vehicle. So now, if you're driving my car, you can see the road underneath you. <laughs> um, and I tell you these stories only <laughs> to describe how frustrated I was <laughs> when Thursday came around. Because these two things that totally threw off my life this week, they were disorienting events for me. Like I, I was like, oh, I don't have my schedule done. I don't have my car. I feel like I've lost a lot of control and then in the midst of that process, I was working on this sermon, and it, the irony did not hit me until yesterday that I, I was allowing these things to eclipse everything else in my frame of reference. And I was like, how ironic is that as I prepped this message about God being on the throne, holding the universe in their hands, that these two small events in the scope of reality are eclipsing everything else around me. But that's what happens when we, at a non-truth level, because I know that that's not true. I know that neither of those events are going to end my life. I know that neither, neither of those events are like so large they can't be solved pretty quickly. But they take up my consciousness in a way that is like beyond truth. It seeps into me, and it shrinks my capacity to imagine life differently for some reason. I feel disoriented and without control. And in those moments, what I need is for my capacity to be expanded. 
And part of what that requires in my own life is that I actually have to be decentered, and God needs to be re-centered. Because the reason that those events are so disorienting for me is what I realized is that they challenged my control. That I used my car as like a means of freedom and flexibility, and losing my schedule was again a means of freedom and flexibility. And when I lost both those things, I felt like I had no control. But when I feel like control is being lost, it means that I have centered myself in this story. And no wonder my capacity to imagine is small, because my ability to control is small. So I need to see beyond myself. I need to be reoriented away from myself and back to God who is bigger than I am and can hold more than I can. And worship and centering us on God increases our capacity to see. Does it mean that my problems are unimportant? It means they become rightly ordered in a way that frees me to live a more imaginative life. In Revelations 4, verse 4 through 8, you get this very strange moment, maybe the strangest moment in the text. Of the four living creatures that are covered with eyes in front and back. And it says the first creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying creature. And each of these four living creatures, they had six wings covered with eyes. And it says day and night, they did not stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is a terrifying image. Because it's such a strange, like visceral picture. But throughout the Old Testament, you see these creatures show up, often referred to as cherubim. And they are representative of something. Not to say they don't necessarily exist, but they are also representative of something. They're representative of the strange and chaotic nature of creation. And in this moment, we see all of creation in these creatures worshiping and oriented towards God. And it is a reminder that as all creation is oriented and driven around God, so also can we be. That at the center of this chaos, at the center of this strangeness, at the center of these creatures that feels terrifying, who sometimes show up guarding heaven and earth, but are always representative of the chaos and scope of creation, that even them center themselves on the creator. And so too can we. See, worship increases our image of God which we need if our ability to live into God's world is going to be increased. Second, worship gives us a glimpse into what feels impossible. As our capacity to imagine God expands, so also does our capacity to image God's work. In Revelation 4, verse 4, I think this is the actual picture that John would have struggled with the most. John sees, surrounding the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders. 
This maybe seems like the least complicated of the image, but I do think that this would have been the most challenging for John because most likely the image that he's seeing in this moment is 12 elders from Israel representing the 12 tribes of Israel and then 12 apostles representing the church. And they're all seated together worshiping God. And the reason I think that would be a challenging image for John is that Israel is scattered all over. Many of the tribes are virtually lost. They've been conquered. They have been assimilated. They don't really know where they are. And the remaining community of Israel is divided and hostile over the gospel. Like they are split socially down the middle. So for this image of the elders to all be gathered together worshiping around God, I think for John would have been so difficult to imagine. I think it would have felt pretty much impossible. Like you're talking about some kind of social reconciliation that is so massive. You'd have to bring tribes back from the dead and also overcome hostility that divides us. Something massive, something resurrection size would have to happen for this to be possible. And I think that's the point. John sees this image that seems impossible because worship gives us a glimpse of things that seem impossible that can only be made in, that can only be made possible in God. On our own, that kind of renewal is impossible. But because worship begins to decenter us and center God and increase our image of God, new things do begin to seem possible. I think a lot of us live with a reduced faith. I think this is true of me. Maybe I say this is true of me. I feel like I live so often with a reduced faith. Again, I know, I know intellectually that God can resurrect the dead, that God can redeem the most broken, that God can renew all things, that God can heal all things. But I don't know that I often feel it. And I think that's because for me, I often make my faith simply intellectual. So I know it. I believe it, but I never glimpse it in a way that increases my ability to imagine God might be up to something more. But worship gives us a glimpse into those things that seem impossible so that we might believe God can do the impossible. And finally, as worship increases our image of God and as worship increases our ability to believe that God can do things beyond us or bigger than us, worship is an invitation to participate in God's reality. In Revelation 4, verse 11, the elders who represent all people, all of God's people are represented in the elders, begin to say, you are worthy our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, 
they were created and have their being. Lies have a way of seeping deep into our being. Lies about God, lies about others, lies about ourselves, lies about the world around us. But in worship, we respond to God's declaration over us. We participate in the thing that God has said is true. The pastor and author, Eugene Peterson, had a really beautiful way of saying it. He wrote, We come to God with a history of naysaying, of rejecting and being rejected. But at the throne of God, we are immersed in God's yes. A yes that silences all our no's and calls us forth in an answering yes in us. In worship, we listen to the voice of being and become answers to it. We listen to the voice of being and become answers to it. God calls and moves towards us, and in worship, we respond and resound to the call of God. It's like God says we are known and we are loved, and in worship we say amen. That's true. And I need it deeper than my mind. I need it in my heart, and I need it in my body. I need my whole self to be oriented in the story of God beyond just my mental recognition. I need to know deeper that I am known and loved. You say you're with me. And in worship we say amen. In worship, we become the answers to the voice of God. It's our participation in a conversation with God. Our reception of God's movement towards us. And it is one of the ways that the good news of who God is, the work that God is doing, seeps into us transforming us and moving through us. Let me ask you, how do we worship? There's a lot of different ways. There's ways that we do quietly on our own, contemplative kinds of worship. We've talked about this before, that our very lives are worship, as Paul says in Romans. What's interesting about this text is that it deals specifically with gathered worship. And I mentioned at the beginning that this is a place that I have struggled with, gathered worship. I've struggled with just the whole practice of it, and then I've also struggled with that image that this is what the future is like, where it's like all singing. I don't know if you've ever heard that, that like heaven is just the chorus forever and ever. And here's what I like to say about that, is that gathered worship is not all that there is. This moment in Revelations chapter 4, it begins something. They're gathered around the throne in Revelations 4 and 5, but then in 6 on, they start to move into the world. 
Jesus opens the seals, which are the plans of God's work to rescue the world. And so all of a sudden, out of worship comes justice, and out of worship comes telling the story, and out of worship comes renewal. So gathered worship is not all that there is, but gathered worship is where we reorient ourselves in God's reality. It's a beginning place. We need gathered worship to live worship lives. We need to be reoriented around God's grandeur. We need to glimpse the possible in our gatherings, and we need to be the collective resounding amen. It is not all that there is, but the challenge for me as a person who has not always known what to do in these spaces is that it is where God reorients us to send us into the world to live a worshiping life. Now, the question for us, Missio, is the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 4, John is invited through a door, which we've talked about before, represents God's presence. When a door opens, God's like, I'm going to be present to you. Enter the door. Let me come into your party. God resp- and John responds to that invitation. And I feel like that's the same invitation that we are being offered today. And every Sunday. So the door is opened. And we are invited into the throne room of God to worship, to join our voices in the chorus of all creation, to be formed, to see, and to receive. And the question is simply, will we? Let's see, let's pray. God, today as we worship you, would we do so with a bit different kind of expectation? I don't know what that means to different people, so it'd be not expectation of hype or, um, I don't know, super spirituality, but an expectation that we would meet you, that we would encounter the presence of you, that we would see you. And then in seeing you, we gain a different kind of vision for you, one that is just bigger than the one that we often hold, one that captures our imagination, that captures our heart, that transforms the the lies that we believe, the small stories that we believe, that pushes those out of our body so that we don't receive the truth of you. So God, today would we enter this moment, this one right here, attentively. Attentive to your presence, responding to your invitation, so that we can leave this place a worshiping people. In your name we pray. Amen. Miss you as acts of worship. We're going to continue to sing. I'm going to also invite you to the table when you're ready. There's elements in the silver cups that you can take at the table, spend as much time here praying, worshiping as you'd like, or you can take those elements and go back to your seats. And there will also be people over here to pray with you, if that's how you would like to worship.
either way. Would you continue worshiping with us?